Hey, women of Marvel listeners, Marvel Studios Black Widow is in theaters May 1st. One lucky fan will be able to attend the premiere of the movie in L.A. How? Apply for the Marvel MasterCard from now until March 15th, 2020 and be entered for a chance to win. No purchase or application necessary to enter the sweepstakes. Must be 18 and older. For rules and to apply, visit MarvelMasterCard.com. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Women of Marvel panel. We have a phenomenal panel for you guys today. We love C2E2. You guys always bring great questions and great costumes and great mood, and I love it so much. So, we have an amazing group of comic writers today, and we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of writing characters that have a legacy, right? The idea of characters that have 80 years of history and how each writer brings their own sort of voice and image to it. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how social media has impacted each one of these writers. I'm Judy Stevens. I am one of the hosts of The Women of Marvel, and I'm a producer for the Marvel New Media team. I do a ton of stuff at Marvel. I actually just celebrated my 14th year here at Marvel. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to ask each of the panelists to say who you are, where you're from, and what you're currently working on at Marvel. Okay, first up, we want to welcome Rainbow Rowell. Hello! Yeah, I'm Rainbow Rowell. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and I currently write Runaways. Speaking of Runaways, we've got some art from Runaways number 31. This is cannon fodder, our Doc Justice saga. And this is exciting because these are the Runaways in costume for the first time, really. Costumes, code names, um, trying their hands at being superheroes. So this issue is on sale March 18th, which is soon, so stay tuned. Okay, and we are welcomed again by Eve Ewing! Hi, uh, my name's Eve Ewing. I'm from Chi City, Illinois. From Chi-Town, and um, I'm currently working on Outlawed and Champions, which will be out in March and April, respectively. I also want to say you are a doctor. You have a PhD. Every time you're on this yes, panel, I'm I am, like, I am yes, doctor yes. reviewing. I am not a medical doctor, so if you have a medical emergency, <laughs> please do not call me. But if you have a social problem, I am happy to assist you with your social problem. We'll be here all day. Yes. <laughs> you are writing champions. Yes, yes, I am. So here's a cover for number one. This is going to be on sale April 8th. So this run of Champions is picking up um, after Outlawed, which is the one-shot event that I'm writing that's coming out this March, March 18th. And so basically in Outlawed, I can tell you it's not too spoilery because it's already public, Congress is going to pass a law that actually makes it illegal to be a superhero if you're under 21 years old. Yeah, right? Plot twist. And um, something that's really important to us in this story is that we don't just want it to be like, ooh, evil government people are keeping the teens from doing the right thing, but actually 
really exploring the conflict of like, should teens be superheroes and what does that mean? What does it mean for the government to tell young people that they're doing something for their safety when some of those young people are like, but wait a minute, you don't care about our safety in all of these other realms and you don't listen to us, right? And um, basically for the champions run, each of the champions, they come from different places. They're different people with different positionality in our society. So that means that they're going to respond to this law in different ways and they're each kind of trying to stay together as a team but they're also grappling with the personal challenges that they're facing in response to this law and it's really challenging and fun for me to write an ensemble of characters that I love as individuals and to try to make sure that each of them gets their own development and their own story without it just being too episodic or, or random so it's a really really fun challenge and then we are welcomed by Gail Simone <laughs> Hello, Chicago. <laughs> I'm Gail Simone, and I just finished up a couple runs with Domino and then Hot Shots with the amazing team of David Baldion and colorist extraordinaire Abertov. So one of my favorite teams I've ever worked with, ever. Uh, speaking of the Domino Hot Shots, so the trade is available now. You can pick it up where you get uh, your trades online and uh, bookstores. Also, it is available on Marvel Unlimited, so you guys can check it out. Also, I just want to talk about that you took a train here. Can we talk about that, please? So, okay, the reason why this is really important to me is my father and my grandfather both worked in trains. So I grew up literally living train life. (laughs) And I'll tell you that a lot of the employees on the trains are huge nerds, Mm. I discovered. So you will fit right in. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I fly all the time and I got to tell you. People are like, why do you want to take two days to get to Chicago? That's a waste of time, right? Well, I live in the Oregon boonies, and for me to get to this convention every year that I've come, I leave my house at 3 a.m. I don't get here until after midnight, if everything runs on time, which mostly the time it doesn't. And it takes me a day to be ready to actually be at the convention. So this time I took the train and it did take two days, but I could work on the train. I was calm. I slept. Mm-hmm. I did not need that extra day to recover from the trip and got things turned in that I was supposed to get turned in. Got off the train, breathed in some fresh air and went, wow, that, w- that went by so fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trains are great. Okay. <laughs> now we're going to get back on track and we're going to welcome Leah Williams. Cheer squad, yeah, 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 yeah. Woo. Now that you put Leah on the spot. These are my friends, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Leah. I'm originally from Oxford, Mississippi, and I'm working on X Factor right now. First issue comes out April 22nd. X Factor is a really exciting book that's part of the rejuvenated X-Men line under Hickman's care. and. Uh, It is the one really exploring the nuance and morality and different questions surrounding the resurrection protocol. Mm -hmm. And I'm working with a team that is tracking down and investigating missing mutants because in order to initiate resurrection procedure, they have to first provide confirmation of death or something like that. Otherwise we'd have like clones running around. I'm super stoked about it. So 
we've gotten a lot of questions over the years for the Women of Marvel about how you get started in writing in comics. And what I think is really interesting about writing comics is that, you know, specifically coming into a brand like Marvel, is that a lot of our characters have history. There have been many writers that have told the unique stories of each of these characters over the years. And I want to start out with you, Rainbow, actually, because, you know, you came in starting in YA and you wrote novels. And scripting for comics is much closer to like a TV show or like a film. What was it like transitioning to writing comics? Well, you know, something I try to remember is like nobody worked in comics until they did. Everybody has to come from somewhere. You can't think of yourself as, well, I could never do that because I don't do that. And then you do, and then you do. So I was working as a novelist. I had read comics a lot for many years, and they were leaking into my novels. So in my book, Eleanor and Park, the two characters fall in love reading comic books. And a Marvel editor read that book and was like, oh, wait, you clearly read comics. Would you like to write one? And he reached out to me, and I said, I really want to bring back Runaways. That's my all-time favorite Marvel book. Could I do that? And he was like, well, maybe. And so that's how that happened. And I think reading comics is the best preparation for writing comics. A lot of it you just absorb. You know, you are what you eat. But then also I, I had an editor and an artist who were really supportive of working with me on a comic for the first time. So my editor, Nick Lowe, was like, no, don't worry. I'm going to be right there helping you. I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong or what you're doing right or, or we're going to work through problems together. And then Chris Inca, who was the artist I worked with for the first year, and we worked on Runaways even before we started writing and working on the book. You know, he was so supportive and he never once made me feel like I was an outsider or he needed to take me to school, even though he did take me to school a little bit. Um, so for me, the transition was really great. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, I've been reading this for so long. It felt very natural. And Eve, which I think is so interesting, is that you know, you're a poet, you're an essayist, you're an educator. What was it like stepping into this crazy world? You know, people ask me, like, how do you switch from, like, I have a children's book coming out this year. I've written a nonfiction book. I've written two poetry books, written for TV. And it's kind of like when people ask me, like, what is it like eating cereal from a bowl and then eating ice cream from a bowl? I'm like, I don't know. They're just, and I think that there's some really essential things about being a writer that I carry with me regardless of where I'm going and that I think of as being dispositions that all writers and all artists should cultivate. So one of those is humility and asking for help. So it goes to Rainbow's point about, I think people really don't know how truly important our editors are, as well as our mentors who give us feedback. The other thing is just studying up, doing your research, looking at people's technique. Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud is a classic book and a favorite book of mine. And even long before I started writing comics, I read and reread all of Scott McCloud's books, as well as Ivan Brunetti, who writes a really amazing book called Cartooning Philosophy and Practice, based here in Chicago. And I feel like those are just good lessons for artists, whatever your medium is. And so, you know, everything I do as a writer, I feel like we go through the same periods of feeling like you suck at it. That never goes away, even for things that you've been doing for a really long time. Feeling that kind of sicky, nauseous, like, I don't really want to do this feeling. And then getting over it and pushing past it and asking for help when you need help, being open to feedback. And so I think that those are the tools that have served me really well and made that transition not so bad. And, you know, Gail, as long as I have worked in comics, your name has been a name that we're like, Gail Simone, yay, let me bow to her. You know, but what was it like for you to start writing comics? It was kind of a different era. For me, you know, everything I've ever wanted to do was scary. And you just have to go for it when you can. 
And the only time I thought about myself as being a woman in comics is when I got interviewed and people would bring it up. I just never positioned myself that way when I first got into the industry. It's just like, I'm a writer and, you know, let's see if I can do this. <laughs> and I was much more worried at the time about other things than I was about being a woman in comics. So it, it's so rewarding and delightful to sit on a panel like this and to see so many diverse voices diverse stories and so much available out there and I always thought and said from the very beginning when I walked in the door that why would you want to cut out 50% of your potential audience before you even put out a book not only did I think it was wrong for publishing but I thought it was didn't make financial sense either <laughs> and and so I just kind of approached it that way and and Joe Casada was the first one who called me I had a humor column online and it made him laugh and I'd been writing Simpsons comics just a little bit before this call, and he said, well, we're, Deadpool's really faltering, the monthly book, and we really want to make it laugh out loud funny. Again, can you pitch for it? And, and he, he goes, you know who um, Deadpool is, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, Deadpool, he's my favorite. <laughs> and, and, and I got off the phone, and I'm like, Deadpool, who is that? I really wasn't <laughs> exactly familiar with. So sometimes a little white light, it happens, I don't know. Um, so I just asked a lot of questions and read a lot of back issues and, and that's really was tough at that time because you didn't have Comixology to go directly to and I live in a small town with no comic store. So I wrote up a pitch and apparently it went through the office and people thought it was really funny and I ended up getting the job and, and it was really important in the beginning all the people that would say, you know, go check out Gail's book, this book that Gail's writing, it's really good, it's different, and people coming in and being that support at that time really meant a lot, and there was a lot of dudes that did that. Mm -hmm. And even one higher up said, you know, because I'm very shy, I have social anxiety, and it was this was like a whole new world, I, ha I had my own hair salon, and that was the world I was used to, and, and he sat me down and he said, you know, you need to act like you belong at the table because you do. And that flipped my thinking, too. It was just like, okay, well, then I'm just not going to worry about all these things that other people say, and I'm just going to sit here, give my opinion, do what I'm supposed to do, and act like I belong here. <laughs> I mean, you know, that rings so true, the idea of support, right? And what I think is great that's come out of the last, you know, 10 to 15 years is this fan community that always existed but now is even louder than before and and Leah, you know, you can sing true to that <laughs> that that community. I mean, you clearly have your own cheer support over here, which I'm like, yeah. You know, what was it like transitioning from someone who sort of followed these amazing writers but now writing of your own right? It's still something that I grapple with to be honest because I I I don't know how to not be a little weird fan goblin online. Um, and I mean, I love fan goblins online, so like, you're doing great. I was so scared at first when I first started writing for Marvel because I have no chill about these characters in like an embarrassing, weird way, you know? I care a lot. So I kept trying to rein it in and like be chill, be cool. And I, I struggled. But then once I did start to like talk about these characters and their history and like kind of the goofy fandom discourse way that I'm accustomed to, people were just reckless with their encouragement, including <laughs> my editors. So I was like, okay, we're all this weird. Like this is the community and it's a lot of fun. 
And you know, as someone who is an avid X-Men fan, you know, we talked about this. We did an amazing Pride episode. We talked about why the X-Men are this sort of queer identity piece for many fans out there. Oh, absolutely. You know, myself included. Obviously, you're writing X-Men characters. Like, what is it like for you to write these characters? Keeping your own voice, obviously, but like writing these characters that have so much history. My kind of saving grace in having no chill, but also working with these characters is the fact that I get excited about the possibility for them first. So I don't have time to like freak out because I'm writing Mary Jane Watson. And what happens instead is I'm asked like, how do you feel about writing an MJ solo? And what pops into my head are all of the possibilities of what she can do because she's an incredible character. So when I got the call about X Factor, I didn't believe it for two weeks. Um, <laughs> and I, I still, is this real? I don't know. Um, but I'm having a lot of fun and that's what counts, I think. It's something that overrides my like disconnect from it. The fact that I'm just more excited about the storytelling possibilities than anything else. And I know exactly where I wanna go and the characters that I wanna use and what should be happening. It's a kind of strength that I've never really had access to in my life before, and it's great. <laughs> and Gail, you know, you talked about writing Deadpool, but you wrote so many other characters over the years, including at our Distinguished Competition. What has it been like for you to keep your voice and your storytelling and your perspective throughout the years? I don't know any other way to do it. So, <laughs> you know, when I sit down to write something like Deadpool or Wonder Woman and, and then even Domino, I sit down and I think about what's gone on before, the things I thought that worked and things that maybe didn't land as solidly, and will those hold up to current readers? And then I start thinking about the possibilities of what kind of stories we can tell, what kind of themes I could put in there. and. You know, you're going to recognize my writing because we're going to have strong characters who know who they are and don't apologize for it. And I'm going to use a varied cast with different personalities and different body shapes and all those things because for so long the industry was lacking that. You know, and I've talked a lot about boob size on panels and skin colors and, you know, motivations, you know, because for there's a while where. Our female characters, not only did they look similar, but they had similar motivations. And I just, you know, not only is that boring, it's just not what humanity is. So these are the things that are always there in no matter what character I'm writing. And when I sat down to finally write Wonder Woman, you know, I researched it, found out what I thought worked about her, what, what I didn't personally like, and how we could make this unapologetically female, and that's what I concentrated on when I was writing that. But you sit down and you're working and, and you're dialoguing and stuff, and I, there was one moment where I just went, whoa, I'm putting words into Wonder Woman's mouth. <laughs> did I, you know, when I was that young girl and I first discovered Wonder Woman, did I ever think that would happen? And with Domino, I went back, and, and Domino seemed like her stories were a lot of different characters. Mm -hmm. She didn't seem to be kind of pulled together is what I got when I was researching it. And so when they asked me to write Domino before Deadpool 2 came out, I went back and, and researched and I just felt she was a little bit disjointed. And so I wanted to concentrate on making her a little more cohesive, having her own voice and not just be a girlfriend, you know, because sometimes she's violent, sometimes she was humorous in her stories. I kind of wanted to combine it all. And that's how I approached that. 
you know, and, and Eve, which I think is really interesting, is that you joined us writing Iron Art, mm-hmm. which is, you know, our character, you know, that Brian Michael Bendis created, but you brought your own world to it but then now you're writing Miles yeah and, and in Kamala. between I wrote um, Marvel team up which is Peter Parker and Kamala so that was a lot <laughs> and I was laughing when Gail said that um, thing because I, I literally walked around my house and I would look at my husband and grab him and say I write words and Peter Parker says the words. And he'd be like, yes, honey, I know. And then I would go in the bathroom and I'd look in the mirror and I'd be brushing my teeth and I'd be like, I write things and Spider-Man says them. Like, I just couldn't. It was, it was, this I'm is not over This is extremely relatable. It's, yeah. we, it's just, uh, yeah, well, I'll stop and let you ask your question. Yeah. Well, wait, I, I actually have like a question. Do you think, is there a line that you wrote for Peter that you were like, oh, I'm not going to get away with this one. And oh. then you got away with it. Oh, how edgy do I want to be on the podcast and CB is right there. Um, so there's one thing that we uh, that I didn't get away with that we had to finesse a little bit. So for those of you, if you haven't read Marvel Team Up, it's a, a three-part miniseries where I decided to have Peter and Kamala switch bodies. So it's like a Freaky Friday situation. So Peter has to navigate the world as a Pakistani-American Muslim teen girl living in Jersey. And uh, Miss Marvel becomes a kind of like disgraced tech bro white man um, from Queens. And, right, so this is where, like, it's kind of funny that I feel like a lot of the internet trolls that hate me, they don't actually read any of the comics, right? Because if they did, there'd be so much to complain about that they actually don't. Like, this is absolutely, like, race-bending, gender-bending, all this stuff. And so there's a scene where Kamala is supposed to have a bio presentation in her bio class, and she tells Peter, like, please don't mess up my presentation. And he's like, I literally have a doctorate in, like, biomedical engineering. Like, trust me, it's going to be amazing. And he goes to school, he's in Kamala's body, and um, I wrote a scene where in the middle of the presentation, he like, he falls over, like he keels over and has to go to the nurse. And then the next scene is this shot of them sitting in each other's costumes, like sitting on a roof eating hot dogs. And Kamala's like, you ruined my presentation. And Peter's like, I thought I was dying. And she's like, you had a cramp. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, you had... Peter's like, I literally thought, Peter's like, I literally thought I was going to die. Like, I didn't know what was happening to me and what was happening to my body. And she's like, you ruined, like, I am going to get an F. And so the, the line as it is now is like, um, she, instead of saying you had a cramp, she says like, welcome to being a teen girl. So we had this like alluding vague allusion to. You couldn't say cramp? cramp? Um, no. We cannot say cramp. Because then people would ask about periods, Rainbow. Well, I'm menstruating right now. (laughs) I'm sorry, ma'am. You're going to have to leave. All weekend long. Just blood coming out of my body. Yeah. And wait, get this. It happens every month. Every Every month. Are you, is there some sort of GoFundMe that we can contribute to for your medical problem? There are four members of the Runaways who just bleed all the time. Yeah, so... And I want to say, like, you know, this was a really, you pick and choose your battles, right? And there's a lot of things that I, that I pick and I push on. And this was the thing that I decided that we were going to compromise on. Um, but, yeah, now I forgot what the question was. Yeah. <laughs> now you answered it. There's that lots of other weird stuff in there. I'm so happy. That yeah. And a lot of it is about <laughs> Kamala being like, oh, being an adult is actually garbage. Like, the, you know. And then the, actually the big win that I got for that book, aside from um, Period Gate, which is uh, <laughs> the big 
big win that I got was that when I was a kid, I read this ghostwriter novelization where one side of the book was told from Gabby's perspective and one side was told from Alex's perspective. Shout out to the seven other ghostwriter fans in the room. Um, and the book had two covers and you could flip it over uh, yeah. and start from either side. And so like 25 years later, I was like, please let me have a book with two covers. And so Marvel team up number one, there's a, a Peter side and you can start and then there's a Kamala side and then they meet in the middle when they switch bodies. Oh, awesome. So I'm shocked That's that I was allowed to, to do that. I love that. The two rainbows, rainbows incendiary confession. That I would like to say that one of my favorite runaways moments written by Brian K. Vaughn is Nico, she had to cut herself and bleed to summon her staff. And there's one issue where she doesn't have to because she's on, <laughs> she has her period. So she just pulls out her staff whenever she needs it. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> yes, yes, um, incredible. Okay, well, speaking of runaways. Everyone should read, everyone should read the Ironheart trade though because you started asking about Ironheart and I didn't answer. It's out, you should read it. It's dope. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit at the top of the panel of how you were a fan, Rainbow, of The Runaways. I was, yeah. Uh, I know, am. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I first started at Marvel and they were like, you have to read The Runaways. Yeah, yeah. You have to read them. They're like these characters, these books, this story, and you get to pick them up sort of after they've been kind of torn apart. But yeah, yeah. what was it like for you to like have to bring someone back to life and all these different right. things? <laughs> several people back to life. Yeah, several back to life. <laughs> um, what Gail said earlier really resonated because I'm kind of a, I like to clean things up. Like, if I'm going to touch a character, I don't want to touch them unless I can keep them as good as they are or make them a little better. And uh, comics characters have really, really messy histories. <laughs> and you, you can't consider all of canon canon at all times because then the impossibility will break your brain. So, like, what I did was just read all the Runaways comics again and then read them again and think about what resonated with me as true for those characters because some things in their history feel real and true and important and other things, it's almost like they just fall right off the character. They, they didn't seem resonant. That doesn't seem like it's part of the soul of the character. So for me, it was like immersing myself in this book that I already loved and thinking about what felt true for Nico especially because uh, Nico and Chase have the most Marvel history. They've been in the most stuff. And so they kind of are the messiest. So what was true for them? And the thing I said to Nick was, I'll do Runaways if we can bring Gert back and she stays fat. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. No problem. So... Um, yeah. I don't know if you're clapping for her being alive or fat. I'm going to assume both. Yeah. Both. Yeah, both. But I felt like we needed Gert, that she's kind of the soul. And then, you know, for me, Victor is my favorite, so we had to have Victor, too. I used to say I didn't have a favorite, and then Chris Anka would just call me out all the time and say, it's Victor. <laughs> it is Victor. Um, so I loved it, but I'm like Hermione Granger. So I'm like, it's all immersion and research, and then, like, I get really thinky about what needs to happen and where each character is going and how can I, I kind of like it when one of them is a huge mess and their continuity is a mess because then I think, well, oh wait, how can I put them back together and make them shine again? <laughs> so let's talk about the online community. You know, I love Twitter because I love following each one of you because you're part of your own communities within Twitter. How do you as writers still stay true to yourself on social media and how do you interact with fans and also at the same time keep your sanity and turn it off when you need to? You want to start, Leah? Yeah, I got stuff to say about Twitter. Um, <laughs> so I, I worked in marketing for a while. Like my career trajectory was like film production, marketing, comic shop, comics. And when I was working in marketing, I learned a lot about the way that these platforms work. So Twitter is unique in its design that 
it has an agitation feature built into the algorithm, and, and this is like a real thing. Um, there are data scientists who work on this, and their job is to make sure that we get as locked into Twitter as we can. So that's why you'll see stuff in your timeline from people you don't follow that is kind of designed to make you angry because Twitter looks at what you click on and what you interact with, and they're like, okay, here's the opposite because they think that it's gonna promote conversation, and they're right. So that's why Twitter feels as bad as it does as a platform. <laughs> that's why it feels so uniquely negative. And that's also why Gail is such an angel, because <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen the way that Gail Amazing. Twitters, but she uses her platform for chaotic good, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whenever I log into Twitter and my timeline is completely incomprehensible, it's usually because Gail is, is trolling like 200,000 people. Um, but it's a huge part of what makes like the comics fans on Twitter, the way that we interact, it's, it's a huge part of what makes it a positive environment. It works against the agitation feature and it's, it's great. I do want to ask Gail, how do you, how do you stay on Twitter? Because you tweet a lot, which is great. <laughs> I'm just super quick at it. That's the main thing because I started online in chat rooms that talked about comics. So that's where I started. No local comic book store, no local comic book fan. So I'm very used to being online, talking to people about comics, about pop culture, about all kinds of things. And, you know, it wasn't always this much of a trash can. <laughs> and, <laughs> and some of it I find amusing. Some of it, you know, you're like, oh man, why are they spending their life doing this? Mm -hmm. But I think that it's important to block a lot of that, but to also let some of it show through so that we kind of all know what's going on and hopefully can come in and support each other, support the people out there that need it. Because the honest truth, everyone, is that when someone who's really super negative and nasty and, and terrible to you online, they go for the people that they know do not have a support system. So if we all have a support system, it really is the best defense against the negativity. And the way I've always handled it is with humor. I used to have someone when I was writing Birds of Prey who just hounded constantly about black canary things. Costumes, attitude, hairstyle, whatever. Or he'd say something negative and I just, right back with black canary facts. I didn't answer any questions. I just like, and it just went on for a long time. And so I do that kind of stuff just because they can't really fight against it. It's funny to me. It, it keeps me from getting angry and, and it doesn't interfere with my writing. And on the other hand, there's such a community there that I have this group of people from all over the globe who do all kinds of things, who have all kinds of backgrounds. If I'm doing something wrong or say something wrong, they're quick to point it out kindly usually. And, you know, I'm able to listen and it's just made, it's made me a better person, a better writer. Yeah, it's aggravating sometimes, but overall I think that the good washes away the negative for me. Not everyone can deal with it and I totally understand that. But that's why when you see someone who is being repeatedly picked on, jump in, become part of the support system, and then they kind of eventually back off. Nothing bothers them more than having a big support system and or being ignored. Ignoring so, them. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
I will say, as, as, a, as a person that is on camera, and as someone who's also a producer, I tell myself and I tell my talent, do not read the comments. Mm-hmm. You know, some people get fire and inspiration from it, and sometimes it just, it may hit you at the wrong day. So, you know, just like Gail says, mute, block, do what you need to do. You don't have to listen to them. Because there are great people on Twitter, and there are great conversations happening on Twitter. I love looking at Twitter and seeing what Gail has started today. <laughs> so, you know, Eve, is, it's interesting because you obviously came, you kind of like <laughs> stepped into it a little bit. But, you know, how do you, how, how do you just keep on going? You know, so there's bad things and there's good things. The bad things is that I have gotten absurd, ridiculous amounts of racist and sexist harassment on Twitter. But my, like, day job is that I'm a sociologist and I study racism professionally. And so the fascinating thing about that is that when people say terrible things to me, I'm like, huh, interesting. Right? Like, I'm, I'm always fascinated. And I think that it helped me realize, also through conversations with mentors, how provocative and important politically comics really are. Because the fact that me writing comics made people so angry actually is very telling about the power of comics, right? And so so that part is really sucky, but it's also fascinating. And one thing is I haven't had Twitter on my phone for over a year. Yeah, it's great. And so, you know, I go on the computer and like do a couple things a day and walk away. I've always had a very healthy mute and block situation. Um, but then some of the good things are, you know, for me starting out, being able to follow somebody like Gail, um, being able to follow so many creators and, and seeing them step up and feeling like I could have some kind of creator community as somebody who's not based in New York, you know, was really meaningful. Um, also, I really love fan art on Instagram. Like, I really love Ironheart fan art and just comics fan art generally on Instagram. And also for me, black nerd Twitter is really important to me. And black nerd Twitter has been important to me for a long time because a lot of us specifically, like, if you're black and a girl and a nerd, all of those things, like in high school, you know, you weren't going to have a cafeteria table of 10 other people that you could sit down and have these conversations with necessarily. And so, like, in the early days of Twitter, it was just me fighting about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers um, at 2 a.m. with, like, some other black dude in, like, Kansas. And, like, for me, that's actually the Twitter that I still kind of yearn for that I have to accept is dead forever. But something with all of my writing is I decide who I'm writing for and what's important to me before I put it in the world and that's always how I judge myself. I judge myself by that audience, the people that I've decided that I'm really accountable to and it means that when they critique me I have to listen and when they praise me I have to accept it even though you know that's difficult to do but I think that that's really important. You have to decide who, who you're really checking for and it, it can't be everybody because you'll lose your mind. Yeah, sanity. Mental sanity is really important. Um, Rainbow, you obviously came, you know, you're on Twitter, you're writing YA and all this stuff, and you have a somewhat younger fan base. Yeah. Um, They can also sometimes be, Twitter is hard sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have that much to add. I just agree with everything they've all said. Um, I also have taken Twitter off my phone. It's been great for me. Almost no one talks to me about Runaways. Like, the bad thing about Runaways is we're kind of off in a corner of the Marvel Universe where Spider-Man doesn't show up all the time. But then also, that means Spider-Man fans don't show up to yell at me. So I don't actually get people complaining about Runaways too often. They just don't want me to break up Nico and Carolina. Um, So if you are on Twitter and want to talk about Runaways, actually, I would love it. So please talk to me about Runaways on Twitter. I I do like the hair conversation that you always get on. That's actually um, Penelope Bunch, who does not have purple hair. And so it's an ongoing thing that my readers disagree 
even though it is not in the canon. And I'm always like, read Runaways. Gert's got purple hair sometimes. If you come for the purple hair. Come for the purple hair. Stay yeah. for the purple hair. <laughs> okay, we only have a few minutes for Q&A. Okay. Hi, Captain Marvel. Hi. Yes. yes. Hello. Hi, I'm Ellen. Um, Hi, Ellen. Huge fan of you all. Uh, my question is for anyone who wants to answer. If you were given free reign to write any character that Storm. you haven't yet written. <laughs> <laughs> who, Sorry, finish your question. You're fine. You're fine. Who would you and why? Storm. <laughs> um, and um, why? Because Storm. And I think that, like, yeah, I'm going to just cede the rest of my time to my <laughs> panelists. I feel like Rainbow's gotten her bit. Yeah, I already did it. And, I, and so I feel like I can't do it again. <laughs> I think if I was going to choose something that I haven't done, I have to. I'd love to do Spider-Man someday because he's Spider-Man. <laughs> I think I have like a Spider-Man story inside me. And then also I would love to do Shazam and the Shazam family uh, at some point. And <laughs> I'd I, I would want it to be the family and not just Shazam though. So. Um, I'm already in the universe where I get to have the most fun. It's the X-Men stuff. <laughs> so I, I feel like I, I'm so spoiled by that already. And I think getting to continue on with characters that I've fallen in love with, like wretchedly fallen in love with while writing them, would be ideal. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Uh, I'm Heather. I'm a teacher in Indiana. Um, I teach struggling readers, and they all love your comic books. But I want to uh, talk to Rainbow. I have a student who said that the first book that he ever read was the graphic novel of Runaways that oh. he stole off my desk. Oh, wow. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Steal this book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I keep buying more copies oh, so other you. students can steal them. Oh, thank so. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so, you. Can thank I just you. ask, are there any other teachers in the audience? I was a 6th, 7th, and 8th grade teacher, so I just want to say, see you all, appreciate you. Hello, Spider-Gwen. <laughs> Hi. My name is Marley, and my question is, this is for um, any of you guys that want to answer, but what was your favorite comic book that you've done so far? Oh. It's so hard to pick a favorite, because while you're writing it, you get super invested in it, and you, you never really want to leave once you're in this world that you get to create and flesh out. There are projects that have impacted me more significantly than I ever anticipated. I think What If Magic and Doctor Strange The End are two one-shots that I wrote that they changed me as a person. <laughs> it was just like a transformative experience because, you know, sometimes stuff hits different. <laughs> It does. For me, I've written probably over 600 comics at this point. Wow. So, um, thank you. So there's a lot to choose from, but if I was going to choose one thing, one arc, story arc, it would be Wonder Woman the Circle, because that story has so many layers, and my goal with it was to tell it from a completely female perspective, from all directions, oh, wow. and Wonder Woman really hadn't been through that treatment in her history. And so I speak a lot at universities over just that one story. Oh, cool. Um, I also have so many favorites, but um, Ironheart is just, 
you know, again, like working on that project changed my life. Riri is a real person to me. That's a really creepy thing to say out loud in public because she's not real. <laughs> no, that's, um, that's but she, so legit. She's real to me. She's like my little sister, my little cousin that I love so much. And I think if I had to pick one single, Ironheart number seven is um, Zombies Attack Chicago and Riri and the Wasp and Riri's friend Xavier have to fight them at Midway Airport. And <laughs> um, I think that like best friends and normal people are a really important part of the comic book universe. And so Riri's best friend Xavier is somebody that I really love and he is the zombie expert he's not a super person but he's like no I know about zombie apocalypses I've been preparing for this my whole life and like please let me be part of this and he puts on a do-rag and some shin guards and goes to Midway with a baseball bat to fight zombies and that's that's my fave um, for me it's Runaways 12 I think it's when Victor and Gert kiss for the first time and then Caroline and Nico kiss for the first time in their whole history and then 11 when Gert dyes her hair brown <laughs> Great question. Thank you. Thank you, Marley. Okay, I think we only have time for one more question, which I think is so fitting because it's Kamala. So why why did Gert decide to dye her hair brown? Because it had been purple for the whole like original. I know. Is that really your question? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I mean, we talked about it. It was like one of the first things Chris and I talked about. I was like, we're going to have her purple for a while, and it's her whole thing. But when Gert first had purple hair, no one else had purple hair. And that is why Gert had purple hair, because she rejects whatever the norm is. She wants to be so different all the time. And I thought about Gert being dead for two years, but really we know it's been like 10. And um, she wakes up in this world where everyone has purple hair, and it must just be like needles under her fingernails every time she's surrounded by purple-haired people. Um, and so I was like, as soon as Gert comes out of her funk, the first thing she's going to do is like zig, where the others are zagging. She's going to go back to brown. But forever? Not forever. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you so much. I want to thank my amazing panelists. Thank you to Rainbow, Eve, Gail, and Leah. Let's give them a round of applause.